Praise God for his worthiness and his holiness, and we are here to declare the reality of Jesus' sovereignty today and every day. Welcome to Harvest, and if this is your first time here, your family here, if you've been here a while, your family here, and we are just so thankful that you are here. My name is Dan Hammer. I have the privilege of being the senior pastor here, and if we're going to be in the Gospel of John today as we continue our Come and See series, kicking off in John chapter 2 as we go verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and so if you want to get a head start there, that would be awesome, and uh, we are just so thankful. We love to worship the Lord here, don't we? Praise God for that. We do that in a variety of ways. We do that through our singing. We do that through uh, his word. We do that through our giving. And just again, just thank you so much for your your faithfulness and your faithful giving throughout uh, the days, weeks, and months, and years. And just uh, ask that you continue to do that as we look to finish October strong. Um, I love how Jesus is building his church. He promises it in Matthew 16, and it was our theme last year, and it's our commitment to really pray that, Jesus, would you please build your church? And I just want to encourage you, church family, that he is doing that. Uh, He has put on our hearts a mission statement right from his word to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And he has given us a vision of one mission, one church, one family. I want to encourage you that he's doing that. He did that this weekend and seeing some of the long-term prayers come to life that this, I don't know whether you realize it or not, over the last two days that this facility was filled with college students from all over the country from a crew national worship conference training to lead worship at the Baltimore Winter Conference. And so the impact that God is going to use this facility to have is going to impact thousands, if not tens of thousands. In fact, the woman that oversees all of crews, seven, uh, seven winter conferences nationwide was here throughout the weekend and was just super thankful. So on her behalf, just say thank you for your hospitality. Um, and I just want you to see a bigger vision of what God's doing here than sometimes you might not see, uh, that we're impacting college students' lives. And that's our commitment to see the gospel to go to the nations and from every age, tongue and tribe, to see God's word grow and expand. So I just want to encourage you with that. That's the one mission. And I'll encourage you with one family. We are a family of families and we love to, we take God's word seriously. We take our mission seriously, but you know who we don't take seriously often? ourselves. We want to live life together and we want to laugh together. Amen. And so I want to encourage us within two weeks, we have an opportunity to gather together as one family to spend some time eating and maybe laughing. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, take a look at this video and see what we have coming up in two weeks. Smoking a pork butt for my chili. Low and slow is really the secret to a masterful chili. My wife is usually the one up the night before making the chili that I'm about to enter. Low and slow, that's her secret. The important thing is that your chili stands on its own and speaks for itself. There's nothing better than that perfect bite of chili where all the spices come together in that perfect harmony. The important thing is to make the chili your own. I find that a sprig of organic cilantro should do the trick. So the key to a great chili is to find all your peppers about a week before, make sure they're really dry, Roast them all yourself and get your spice blend really ready and make sure nobody adds anything to it. All right, so the real secret to an authentic chili is buying the right tortillas. I find that Old Del Paso by far the best. So the real secret to an authentic taco, chili is the tortillas, (laughs) by far. (laughs) My favorite part about that is Tyler Atwell's cackle in the background there at the last second. (laughs) 
Again, we love to laugh together and we love to live life together. This is family and we want to live on mission together. And so again, if this is your first time here, man, this is who we are and this is what we do. So I want to encourage you to join us in two weeks. Uh, we are going to have a chili fest. We're going to have a chili cook-off, but it is a potluck time to just gather after the service to eat together, to share together, to live life together. And so if you want to enter a chili, you can do so online. Scan the QR code in your bulletin or on the back seat back in front of you. Go to harvestannapolis.org slash bulletin if you're online and, uh, and you sign up there or there's a sign-up sheet in the back. But come on, come one chili, come all chili and, um, you know, and praise God that, that for how he's working and moving. Um, we're going to have communion at the end of the service. And so just to prepare you here, but even let you know if you're joining us online, if you want to grab some elements around you uh, so you can just be ready with a, a just a, a cookie or cracker or whatever you have to drink. Uh, we're going to celebrate God's word, uh, God's communion at the end of the service here. And we are a church of grace because as you, as you notice, and you might not know some of the hidden jokes in that, in that service. Last year, Austin won the chili contest by, by ch- turning chili into a taco. Um, and so, but he was graciously still given the, the winning trophy. Um, and, and today, as we look in John 2, we're going to see Jesus do something far greater than turning chili into a taco. We're going to see Jesus turn water into wine as he really makes his entrance continue to be revealed and known to us about who he is to us, declaring the reality and revealing God's glorious splendor and his uh, absolute power that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the savior sent by God to change everything for us. We're going to see a situation in John chapter two, where there is a much shame that might be happening to some of those that are living and walking in this scenario at the wedding. We're going to see people that have no idea what to do. They're going to see people that feel powerless, if not helpless. And what do they do? They turn to Jesus in those times and they experience his grace and his majesty because God's grace changes everything, doesn't it? And so I don't know if maybe you're here today and you can relate to a sense of shame that might be hovering around you or a cloud over you or or sort of feel like the walls of shame are are coming around you culturally, personally, relationally. The text can relate to that too, the people in the text. I don't know if you're here with a problem that you can't solve. You don't know what to do and, and you're tired of trying to figure it out on your own. You're just weary, worn out, frustrated, discouraged at your end. Those in the text can relate to that as well. And the same grace of God that will, be, that will meet those in the text that we see today as a demonstration of the glory of God is here to meet you today as well. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is greater than everything. And I pray that these principles of these te- from this text would just penetrate your heart and your life and that you would choose in response to the demonstration of the glory of God and the grace, the display of the grace of God to choose to believe in Jesus, the son of God as your savior, because that will change everything for you. The response that we have to the demonstration of God's grace is to either receive it and believe it and find life through it or to reject it and to choose to walk in a, a miserable life apart from it. The big idea for today on the screen in your notes that you'll see is this. The manifestation of the glory of God reveals the life-transforming grace of God. The manifestation of the glory of God reveals the life-transforming grace of God. And however you walked in here, I'm just glad that you're here. However you joined in online, I am just glad that you are here. Because the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God that changes everything, wants to meet you where you are, no matter how depressed, anxious, messed up, screwed up you feel like you are or your situations are around you, the grace of God wants to meet you, to cover you, to sustain you, and to fill you today and every day. Will you respond to it by receiving it, by believing it, 
by living in it, and then by demonstrating it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for the power of your grace, for the display of your glorious splendor. You are greater. And I just pray today that we would see the demonstration of that, and not just a demonstration of it, the reality of it, and that we would allow that to change and transform our lives. God, as you point us to yourself, as you point us to your surpassing grace, your unmatched power, your salvation, your forgiveness, the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers our sins once and for all to truly give us new life. Father, I pray that whatever the distractions are that are around us or even in percolating inside us in our hearts or our minds, that you would, you would remove them and that you would focus us on your son. And Jesus, I just pray, pray that you would make yourself big today. I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to do what you want, or what you want us to do, that you promised to do, that you would convict us and compel us, encourage us and exhort us, remind us of who you are, and allow us to respond with belief, with reverence, with awe, with surrender, as we receive the gracious free gift of your grace today and every day. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's word, we would love to give you one. It's in the back. We believe that these hold the words to life, that this is life, um, and it points us to Jesus. And so we're going verse by verse, which is what we do at Harvest and uh, through the gospel of John over the next several months. And so we're beginning right now in John chapter 2, verse 1, the fourth book of the New Testament. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they were filled to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But they have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs, his being Jesus. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 11 of this text, and we want to pull out the text of God's truth, we want to apply it to our lives, tells us specifically and clearly the purpose of this text. The purpose of the miracle. Jesus spells it out. John the, ba- John, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, so many Johns in the Gospel of John. John the Apostle spells it out in verse 11. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana. And what did it say? And it manifested his glory and his disciples believed. The purpose of this sign was to manifest the glory of God the glory of the Son of God, the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, the word manifest means to make visible and known 
what had been hidden. We, the word manifest in our culture is thrown around a lot these days, right? It's almost like equivalent to the power of positive thinking. If I think about it enough, I can make it happen. Well, we can't think about our sins enough to make them go away or to save them for ourselves. This manifestation was a revelation of the glory of God and the amazing grace of God. All you have to do is look back to the, the prologue of John 1.14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we see that this John 1.14 prologue is beginning to come to life right here in John chapter two, in the first miracle, the first sign of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the glory of God, because Jesus was full of the glory of God, but also full of the grace of God and truth. And Jesus's presence in and of itself is God's grace. It's a gift we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor, offering us salvation. Now, what is glory? Glory by definition is God's intrinsic character. It's who God is. It's God on display. I heard someone once say that glory is to God as wet is to water. Water cannot be anything but what? Wet. And heat is to fire. I think it's a good analogy. It's a display of God's love and grace and mercy and character and, and just beauty and splendor and greatness and superiority. And you can go on and on and on and on. So Jesus is displaying the reality that he is God. Do you see that? Because again, verse 11 makes it abundantly clear the direct application of this text. What's the application of this text once you experience the glory of God is to do what? To believe. That's what the disciples did. We're gonna see Mary exhibit that a little bit, the mother of Jesus. But that's the application, to believe. When you see the revelation of Jesus, the application is to believe. Are you believing? And remember, we're gonna say this almost every week because we, we wanna anchor in the truth of God, the whole context of God's word. John the apostle is writing the whole gospel of John like a legal brief with a point and purpose explicitly said in John 20, 30, and 31. Remember where he says, now Jesus Christ did many other signs. So the sign word is an important theme throughout the gospel of John in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But these, these signs implied there are written so that what you may what? believe that Jesus is who? The Christ, the son of God, Christ being the anointed one, Christ being the Messiah. We're going to see that in the text. And that by believing you may have life, how? In his name. So the whole gospel of John hinges on that verse and is living out that verse. And this John 2, 1 through 11 is an example of that. Jesus manifests his glory. So what? So we will believe in him wholeheartedly. Are you believing? because you can receive eternal life through believing in him. That's the only way to receive eternal life and abundant life here on earth. Are you doing that? God's grace is given without condition and without limit. Praise God for that. It's grace upon grace and it changes everything. Yes, for our salvation, but also for our daily sanctification. It gives us the perspective and it gives us the strength through the Holy Spirit to respond to the day-to-day -day activities of life with God's grace to endure when life is hard, that's God's grace, to be strengthened, that's God's grace, to continue to obey the word of God when our flesh says, I want you to do what, you want, what I want you to do. God's grace strengthens us for our sanctification. It provides for us our salvation. But you can only experience that salvation when you respond to God's grace with faith and belief. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Will you do that? So in this text, we're gonna see three different grace-displaying revelations by Jesus 
about Jesus so that we can believe and receive life through Jesus. Grace displaying revelations of Jesus, about Jesus, so that we can believe and receive life through believing and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's this text. The first is this, that Jesus is the son of God. Again, it ties into John 20, 31, and we see it in the text, that Jesus is the son of God. This is our pathway to experience life. And if you're walking in this room and you're experiencing misery, you're experiencing doubt, you're experiencing just despair, you're welcome here. And I pray that the, the hope of the gospel will meet us here. The grace of God, like Jesus is meeting us here. Now in verses one and two, we see this is the first of signs and Jesus performed seven distinct signs slash miracles in the gospel of John, seven distinct ones. The interesting irony in a way, if you would, of these signs is the first one is done at a wedding here in John two. The last one's done at a funeral in John 11. All of them point to Jesus with a specific purpose. Now we see Jesus at a, at a wedding and we see that in verse one and two describes the reality that, that is in three, that Mary was there. There was a Cana and, and Galilee. There was a wedding in Cana and Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. He's never referred to her by her name. That's significant. We'll talk on that in a second. And Jesus, verse two, was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I, imagine your holy imagination here a little bit. And, and I, I just love this part because it expresses the humanity of Jesus. Jesus gets invited to weddings too. He's a 30-year-old single young adult and he gets invited to the wedding. I'm wondering, do you think he got his RSVP back on time? Do you think he's like, here's my plus six. My disciples are rolling in with me, right? Like, cause he had about six of them that were following right now. You think he's talking to Peter in the corner? Like, what kind of food they're gonna have guys? You think Jesus was dancing? Was he a good dancer? Like, cause Jewish weddings, they, they, they dance. <laughs> Just imagine Jesus. He's a guy just like you and me. He attends weddings and family functions. He's 100% man and he's 100% God as revealed by this text. Check out Jesus's response. Mary comes to him and says, son, we have a problem. The wines ran out. You're like, what's the big deal? Who cares? Implied in this text, we don't know, but there's a strong indication that Mary had a personal connection to the family that is hosting this wedding party. Maybe it's a family friend, maybe it's a, a relative, we don't know, but Mary had some vested interest, it seems. And you're like, what's the big deal? The wine ran out. Well, they just can't run down to the local store and get more wine. And in fact, there was such deep cultural shame attached to potentially running out of wine at a wedding. And there was deep, such a deep cultural rule that you could even get fined monetarily if you ran out of wine at the wedding you're hosting. So this is a big deal. Shame, punishment, you know, consequence, whatever word you want to describe there. So Mary, when she doesn't know what to do, when she's like, I need help, I can't fix anything, who does she turn to? Jesus. And check out Jesus' response to her because the tonality of it is incredibly important. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if I talk to my mom like that, woman, I don't know that he said what like that. He's probably more like woman. What does this have to do with me? I'd probably get in trouble. Even my 40 something year old self. <clears throat> but what seems to us as disrespectful culturally isn't. It's not. 
when you actually look at the grammar and how it's done and all the things. But while it's not disrespectful, it absolutely is distancing. There's a pivot in the relationship between Jesus and Mary here. Because Jesus' public ministry, is, is embark- he's embarking on his public ministry. So no longer is he just Jesus, son of Mary and son of Joseph. He is saying, I am the son of God. How do we know that? Because he says, my hour has not yet come. He is referring right there to the crucifixion and the resurrection that will be coming. Where it was required for him to be 100% man and 100% God in order to fully pay the price for your sin and mine. You see, we're all sinners in need of a savior. When we sin, there is a death penalty that it gets enacted because every sin comes with it, a death penalty, and it has to require a perfect sacrifice of which none of us in this room, I believe, are perfect, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. We can have a discussion afterwards if you think you're perfect. I'm not perfect. Only Jesus was. He had to be 100% God to live a perfect life in order to be able to qualify as our perfect sacrifice. Without giving up any of his divinity, he took on full humanity and he came. That's God's grace. Praise God, amen. So in saying the, my hour has not yet come, he's beginning to declare and reveal, I am the son of God. I am not here to do the whims and the will of any man or woman, even my mom. I'm here on a mission from God. Not even Blues Brothers style, but the real God. To do what only I can do. Because I love you. And I am the living embodiment of God's grace for you. Because it's a gift without, that we can't earn, that we don't deserve. And praise God for that. Praise God that God loved us so much. And I want you just to sit in this, that he would send his only son, the son of God. To when that hour came, Jesus went up on that cross, took our nails, paid our price so that we can have a restored relationship with our heavenly father. Praise God, amen. You are so loved. We see that at the end of every service, and it's not just vernacular. It's not a catchphrase. It's not a slogan. It's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are loved. No matter what anybody in this world says about you, the God who created you loves you enough to send his son to die for you. That's the hour that Jesus is referring to right here. Praise God. The pivot right here is Jesus essentially saying to Mary, you, like anyone else, need to approach me like a sinner in need of a savior because that's what you are. There's a pivot. We are all sinners in need of a savior, Mary herself included. Because when he says, what does this have to do with me? He's essentially saying, why are you involving me in this? which gets to our response to the reality that that Jesus is the son of God. So how should we respond to the reality of Jesus's divinity, that he is the son of God? Divinity means he is the son of God, 100% God. How should we respond in our daily lives? Well, the same way that we see Mary responding in this text. The first is with reverence and deference. We're looking at verse five. Do whatever he tells you. Don't do what I tell you. Do whatever my 30-year-old son, who actually is the son of God, 
tells you because he's greater than me. I'm going to defer to him. I'm going to revere him by going to him and I'm going to defer to him. I'm not telling Jesus what to do. How many of us in our lives are trying to tell Jesus what to do in our own hearts in the lives of those that are around us? God, do this, do this, do this, do this. See you later. Yes, Jesus has come with every request, but we need to, with reverence in our prayer life, in our heart posture, go, not my will, but yours be done. Come as you are, bring it, ask everything, ask anything. But may we have the heart posture of humility like Mary is displaying here with a reverence and a deference that says, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because you're greater than me and I'm gonna trust that you have your best for me in play, even if I don't like it or I can't see it. The second way that we need to approach Jesus and respond to the reality of his, his, his divinity is this, by seeing and seeking. Mary saw Jesus appropriately as the answer to her problem. We have no wine. I can't make water turn into wine. Any of you go home today and like take out your 20 ounce bottle of water and turn that into wine? I don't think so. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can really answer your deepest, and only Jesus has answered your deepest problems, your deepest questions, your deepest issues. Do you see him as that today? As a son of God, as the answer to your problems, whatever they are, fill in the blank problem. Jesus is the ultimate answer of your inner most important problem. He might not fix the external circumstances around you. He might not always make the wine appear out of water but he will always give you the peace that you are seeking, the hope that you are desiring, the joy that you are needing, and the salvation that we can't have any other way. And then when you see Jesus as the answer, are you then seeking him? Where did Mary go when she had a problem? She went to Jesus. Are you bringing your problems right now to Jesus? Big, small, all, you bring them to Jesus. Anna and I went to a, a, a prayer seminar this summer as part of um, some of the ongoing training that we do with the GCC and, and a retreat. And it was just, they brought a really guy in that really revolutionized my prayer life. And it, it took away the shame and the guilt from praying for small things. You talk about this illustration about praying for a parking spot. You're like, why would we ever pray for a parking spot? Why would we not? Not that you would get it. But Jesus says, come, bring the biggest things that you think are impossible and bring the littlest things that you think are too menial. Come, where do you need to seek Jesus because he is the answer today? You might see him as the answer, but then are you taking the next step to seek him as the answer? To pray to him, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Jeremiah 29 talks about the reality that we will seek God when we seek him with all of our hearts. God is the worst hide and seek follower of, any, of all time. He wants to be found. Will you seek him with all your heart today? The third way that we should respond to the reality of Jesus' divinity is this. Trusting and believing. Mary, even when she was lovingly, softly rebuked by Jesus, why are you getting me in the middle of this? What does this have to do with me? What does she do? She trusted to believe that Jesus would do whatever was best. She literally says it in verse five. Do whatever he tells you, even if he says do nothing, right? Because he knows what's best. She believed in who he was and she trusted him to act in the best interest of all involved 
especially himself in the situation? Are you trusting and believing that Jesus will do what is best for you today? And by God's grace, guess what Jesus did? He, he turned water into wine. He's like, why are you involving me in this? My hour isn't here. But in his grace, what did he do? He lovingly provided. That's who he is and that's what he does. Doesn't mean you will always get the specifics of what you ask for, the way you ask for them, when you want them, how you want them, because Jesus doesn't operate on your timeline. Praise God for that, amen? Because he's greater, he's better, he's best, but are you trusting and believing in the reality of Jesus' divinity that he is the son of God and are you going to Jesus today with a heart posture that says, Jesus, do whatever you want to do. Where do you need to adjust your heart posture? And then where do you need to then obey? Because that's the fourth way, submission and obedience. Do whatever he tells you. Submit and obey. We're all servants if you've surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ of Jesus which means I surrender control when I turn to Jesus. Are you walking in obedience today? Are you submitting and surrendering? Do whatever Jesus tells you. What is Jesus telling you? Like, how does Jesus speak to me today? Well, are you bringing your issues under the authority of God's word? Are you seeking God's word for the answer to your problems? Or are you just trying to invent it yourself? Are you praying and then are you actually stopping to listen and when God tells you something to do, whether you like it or not, are you willing to do it? Whether it's hard or not, are you willing to do it? Remember, God's grace will sustain you through it. God will never call you to something that he will not sustain you through it and provide for you in it. That's his grace. It's not just a suck it up and endure stronger through my strength. No, it's a surrender and a submission. And to God, do whatever you want to do in me first and then through me. Because I'm trusting you and I'm obeying you, and I'm seeing you, and I'm seeking you, and I'm revering you. Because ultimately I'm worshiping you. Why? Because you are the son of God. I am bowing my knees before you. You want additional context? Here? Read Philippians 2 and see the reality that Jesus left a place he didn't have to leave, took on the form of a servant, even to the de point of death on a cross to save you and I. Praise God for that, amen? What grace, what grace. We are all helpless and hopeless to solve our sin problem, but God. And Jesus here manifests the glory of God, manifests his glory because he is God. And in a demonstration and a revelation of the life transforming grace of God. Will you believe it? Will you receive it? Will you submit your life to it and surrender to it? It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to surrender to it. Will you surrender today? Because everything will change when you do. It doesn't mean life will get easy, but God's grace will sustain you through it. The second grace revealing, uh, displaying revelation for Jesus bias in this text, uh, we, that by Jesus, about Jesus, so that we can receive life through Jesus as we believe it is this, that Jesus ushers in the new covenant. Verses six he says, now there were six stone jars and for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they fill them to the brim. And he said to them, take them to the master of the feast. And it turned out to be wine. More on that in a second. But let's not race past verse six and verse seven here, this beautiful reality of what Jesus is doing. 
These six jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification as part of the observation of the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law. Now, the Old Testament law is beautiful, but it's also burdensome. It's a conditional covenant that was first instituted in Exodus when God said, if you do all of these things, then you will be who? Mine, my people. Praise God that he provided this pathway for us to be his people. But the burdensome reality of the law is that can we do all of these things that is outlined in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Can we do all of them? No, we can't. It requires essentially perfection of which we are not. Yes, we are called to pursue them, but anytime you would fall short of them, there's a whole ceremonial process and, and, sub, and substitutionary process, sacrificial system of process that you had to go through because there needed to be a death penalty. There needed to be a, a perfect payment for your sin and my sin. That's the old covenant. And it involves sacrificing animals, ritual cleansings and cleanings. It involved on a day of atonement, a high priest going into the Holy of Holies and, and making atonement for all of the sins involving using the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and a lot of things you can go back and research later. But the heartbeat of this, when it points to the reality and saying six stone jars of water, the Jewish rites of purification, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is here to usher in a new covenant. That the old covenant, almost sort of looking at the old wine, is drying up, is about to be fulfilled by Jesus, replacing it with a new wine, a better wine, pointing us to his shed blood on the cross for our sins, ushering in the new covenant of grace. That Jesus is going to pay our substitute, be our substitute, make atonement, provide the payment, satisfy the legal requirement for, the, for our sins once and for all on the cross as he laid down his perfect life for you and me. What a gift of grace, amen. That's what this miracle is ultimately pointing to. It's not about just enjoying some temporary fulfillment of a drink having your thirst temporarily satisfied. Because guess what? No matter how good that wine was, what, are, what is every person at that wedding feast going to be the next day? Thirsty again. But Jesus, as he will explain vividly throughout the rest of the gospel of John, says, I am the living water. I have come that when you drink of me, you will never be thirsty again. Jesus is pointing us through this sign to the reality of the ushering in of the new covenant. He says it himself in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. They required a sacrifice. He will be the ultimate sacrifice, fulfilling the obligations of the Old Testament law. Hebrews 10.1 describes the law as this. It's a shadow of the good things to come. Jesus here is saying it's no longer a shadow. I am the good thing that is to come. I am the best thing that was prophesied that would be coming. I am the savior. Paul writes in Romans 6.14, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Praise God for that, amen. Since you are not under the what? The law, but you are under what? Grace. Just exhale under that reality, right? <sighs> Praise God. Because what the Old Testament law said is you must do. What the New Testament law says of Jesus is I have already done. Praise God. 
that our source of salvation is not in anything that we have to do, must do, because we can't do. It is all in what Jesus has already done for us. Praise God for his grace. Would you rest in that grace today? That Jesus fulfilled the legal demands of the Old Testament taking on our sin and giving us his righteousness in like this transactional, literal account. It's an accounting term. And he did that by paying our price and dying our death on the cross. I love how the author of Hebrews describes sort of this process in Hebrews 10, 10, um, or in Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places of the blood of Jesus by the new and living way, the new way, the new wine, the new covenant that he opened, he, Jesus, opened us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this temporary purification water of the Jewish rites were being replaced by the pure living water of the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And it is overflowing these six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons filled to the brim that God's grace is upon grace upon grace is never ending. His love is without condition. His welcome is without judgment. He just says, come as you are. My grace will meet you where you are and my love will change you where you are because I am the son of God. I am the savior. I am the new way. I'm your living hope. Praise God for that, amen. No longer do we have to wait for the priest to go into the Holy of Holies. When Jesus was died, when he paid a price for our sins on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that we now have direct access to a restored relationship to God, our heavenly father. We don't have to go through the Old Testament way. We have a direct access, a reconciled relationship opportunity if we choose to put our faith in Jesus in response to his gift of of grace and sacrifice for us. And Hebrews 10.10 says that Jesus made this sacrifice once and for all. Praise God. It's finished. Isn't that amazing? Christ fulfilled the law by living a perfect life, dying our death, so that in his name, John 20, 31, if we believe in him, we can have life too. Praise God for that. So what is our response to this beautiful reality? It's to believe, to stop striving, do more, clean myself up, live better, work out more, be more righteous, give more money, memorize more verses. None of that can save you. Only Jesus can. Surrendering to Jesus is the only way to trust in him and to rest in that reality of his beautiful salvation. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you moved from striving to surrendering? That's the response to the new covenant. That's what the disciples are doing. They believed. Are you doing that? Will you do that? Will you trust him in that? Will you surrender not just your life for your salvation, but on your every day, are you anchoring in the grace of God? Are you anchoring your marriage in the grace of God? Because the grace of God changes everything. Relationships can be restored when we make them gospel-centered because Jesus can do everything. Are you anchoring your parenting in God's grace? 
your approach at work in God's grace, how you view your friends in God's grace, or people that have hurt you with God's grace. Are you anchoring everything in your life to the view of the new covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ? As recipients of God's grace, we are now called to be conduits of God's grace. Are you doing that? Are you willing to forgive others who hurt you like Jesus' unlimited forgiveness continues to forgive you when you and I screw up on a daily basis? Are you welcoming all others without judgment? Are you loving all others without condition? Are you giving them grace? Grace is not the absence of truth. It's not the absence of boundaries. All of those things are biblical. But we should never be absent of the grace of God. And I love this beautiful, beautiful picture. I love when we look at the text of God's word with a little holy imagination. Tim Keller was really helpful with me on this and he sort of used this analogy. I want to share it with you this week as I studied. If you're a young adult, 30 year old, like Jesus was at a wedding, what are you often thinking about potentially? Your own wedding, right? You're like, huh, would I wear that dress? Hmm, would I serve that food? Hmm, what will it look like? When I walk down the aisle, if I'm the bride or if my bride walks towards me. Imagine Jesus doing the same thing here. You're like, Pastor Dan, Jesus never got married. You're right, kinda. He never took an earthly wife, you're right. But the metaphor of marriage is all throughout the New Testament. That Jesus is our bridegroom and we as his church are what? His bride. So imagine Jesus at this wedding picturing what it will look like to reunite with his bride, you and me. And imagine as it crosses over that metaphor with Jewish culture, the Jewish wedding was a beautiful thing. It was often happened in three parts. They would get engaged, which meant betrothed, which meant you is so serious, maybe more serious than what we do today that you couldn't break it without a divorce. Think Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born. And what would happen after the, the, they got engaged was they wouldn't live together, they wouldn't consummate the marriage, but you know what the bridegroom would do? He would go away to build a home for the new bride and the new bridegroom. The bride did not know when the bridegroom would come back. In fact, that was often determined by the bridegroom's father. And so the bridegroom would be what? Preparing herself in all the ways that you would think of for whenever the bridegroom would come back. And often the bridegroom would come back at night, unannounced initially, but making his presence known with his sort of brothers and, and friends by the playing of a loud trumpet and the displaying of lights because it was dark at night. And then he would get, meet his bride and they would what? They would begin this feast, this celebration where we see in John chapter two right here. As we think about what the scripture teaches us about the church, that if we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, when we come to salvation, we enter into this beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus that no one can ever take away, it is signed, sealed, delivered. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit seals you for all of eternity. Praise God for that, amen. And so Jesus paid the price for our sins and then he ascended into heaven. In John 14, what did he tell his disciples he was going to do in heaven? That he was going to prepare a place for who? For us. And Revelation talks about the reality that we as his bride should be doing what? We should be waiting with expectation, preparing ourselves for when our bridegroom will come back. That we should be pursuing holiness and righteousness, living on God's mission. That one day when we don't know the bridegroom, of, that is Jesus, will come back. And how will he come back? 
with trumpets to collect his bride and take her to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, where they will feast, just like a wedding supper that we see here. Just imagine that beautiful picture ushered in by the new covenant, epitomizing God's grace, amen? That we get to feast with Jesus for all of eternity. And so whatever shame, whatever situations you're walking through, would you picture an eternal perspective of feasting with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb for, and just drinking in his grace, soaking in his mercy for all of eternity? And know how cherished you are, how loved you are, that whatever you are facing today, rest in the reality of your identity in Jesus Christ. That he loves you, he died for you, he is coming back for you, and he offers a new living hope for you today and every day. Praise God for that, amen? That is grace upon grace upon grace. That is the epitome of what John talks about in the prologue in John chapter one, verse 16 and 17, and where he said, and from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. That's what this text is pointing to. And so the third revelation, the grace displaying revelation of this text by Jesus, about Jesus so that we can experience life through Jesus is this that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Messiah. So he's the son of God, great, great. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the son of God. But what are you doing with that information? Okay, great, Jesus ushers in the new covenant. He died on the cross for our sins, awesome. But you still have to trust him as your Messiah. You still have to surrender to him as savior in order to experience this eternal life. Knowing about Jesus is different than knowing Jesus. And we see the disciples again to display the reality that they believed in him as God, as Jesus manifested his glory. This wine was taken to the master of the feast. And what does he say, the master of the feast say in verse 10? Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. Other translations take that word good and translate it as best. Jesus is saying, I am what is best for you. I am the Messiah. I reign and I'm sovereign over you as a son of God and I've come to die for you and give you life as the Messiah, the anointed one. And the disciples responded with belief. Will you respond with belief today? The use of the word sign here is really important. It's intentional by John. The word, the word sign means to point to something deeper Something else is happening here. Don't stop at the sign. See the savior, right? Who in here has gone or taken a road trip when you were a kid or maybe with now as an adult with your kids to Disney World, right? Yeah. You're driving down there and imagine you're driving, you've been on 995, you've gone for hours and hours and endured like a million times. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Which I, annoys me now, but I asked a million times as a kid too, Right? I praise God for my parents and their grace. But you're getting there, you're getting there, you're getting there, and all of a sudden you're pulling down 95 and you see this sign on the road. You'll see it on the, you'll, you'll see it on the screen behind me. You'll see this sign. And what does that say? Disney World, two, two minutes. And imagine you pull the minivan over, there are Cheerios strewn all over the place. You get out of the car, you pull out your kids, you take a little selfie, you turn around and you go home. You're like, kids, we made it to the sign. <laughs> Woohoo! 
Would that go over well? No. Congrats on making it to the sign. But you missed out on the bunny ears and Mickey and, and all the rides and all the things. How many of us treat Jesus like that? We come to church and we're here for the sign more than the savior. We're here for more what Jesus can do for us and who he is to us. We want the miracle, but not the Messiah. And if we don't see the miracle, we're out on the Messiah. Or even if we get the miracle, we're out on the Messiah. And then eventually one day the miracle runs out. Or we realize that getting restored health, and Jesus can do anything. I'm not denying miracle. God can do anything and praise God that I pray that he will do many things to display his glory. But the point is, the miracle is not as a means to an end. It's a means to pointing to the Messiah. The sign points to the Savior. If you're here today for just an emotional experience, you're going to leave empty-handed eventually. Because Jesus wants your heart. He wants your soul. Don't stop at the sign. Don't just come to church for the show. Many people in Jesus, they gather around him. They're like, I heard you can turn water into wine. I heard you can take a couple of bread and fish and turn them to feed 5,000. I heard you that you heal people and give blindness. True, but that's not the point. The miracle was intentional to display what? The manifestation of the glory of God so that you would believe in Jesus as the son and the Messiah of God. Same thing today. Where in your life are you actually seeking just the sign and not the savior? Don't come for the show. Seek the substance of the gospel. Many people turn from Jesus when he says, look at the cost of the gospel. It's a free gift, but it will cost you your life. It costs, it's gonna cost me my life. I'm gonna have to die for you and you're gonna have to die to yourself. Die to your plans, die to your way to trust and to follow me as a Messiah. You have to surrender, control. Where do you need to surrender control today? Maybe you're here and you've been dabbling in church all your life, but you've, you've been missing out on Christ. You can come to church all your life and miss out on Christ. If you, that's you, repent today, turn and believe right here, right now. Jesus is the Christ. Don't just come for the sign. Don't just come for the miracle. Often God will do those things that you come, but don't stop short so close and miss the Messiah, miss the Savior. Surrender your life right now. It's going to be hard, but beautiful. The cost away will cost you everything, but it'll give you more than you ever imagined. Why? Because Jesus is the new wine. He is what is best. He is what is best. His grace is greater than any past shortcoming you have ever experienced. His grace is greater than your greatest sin. His mercy is bigger than any amount of mess that you find yourself in today. Any worry that you have, any anxiety, Jesus' grace is greater. He is the best. He is the Messiah. Will you believe and will you surrender? Where in your life are you coming to church or dabbling in religion because you're, you're just here for the sign? You're just here for the miracle. All of those things point to the Messiah and to the Savior. They're means to an end. The end is Jesus. And he wants to transform you. He wants to do a miracle in your life. He wants to do things in you and through you and great and that you can ever see. But, but he wants you to know before anything that he's the Messiah. How do you view Jesus today? As just a big genie, jack-in-the-box genie in the sky that you rub a couple times and do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, or else I'm out? Or do you truly view him as the Messiah? And will you surrender your life to him today? That's the point of the miracle. 
to manifest the glory of God, display the grace of God, so that we would respond in belief that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to offer you life today. Would you bow your heads with me as you take out your communion cups as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Father, we just thank you so much for who you are, your grace and your goodness. We are here to declare the reality that you are glorious and you are greater. God, forgive me for so many times in my life seeking you just for the sign, coming just for the show, seeking you just for the miracle in and of itself without yielding to you as the Messiah, enjoying you as my Savior, trusting you as the Son of God. You gave your life for us. And may we give our lives to you. God's word says that as we begin to celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper, that we should not come with, a, with an unclean heart. So in these next few moments right now, I just want you to take a few moments and, and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. Is there any unconfessed sin? Maybe you've been coming to Jesus just looking for the miracle or the sign, or maybe you've been running from Jesus, not trusting him, not surrendering to him. Maybe you've been trying to build your kingdom and not his. Ask the Holy Spirit to stir in your heart areas that you need to repent. And would you just confess those sins right now to God? And maybe for the first time, put your hope and your faith in life and Jesus as your Lord and Savior. At Harvest, we practice open communion. What that means is you don't have to be a formal member of the church to participate in communion here, but biblically speaking, communion is just for believers. And so if you have not put your faith and hope and, and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I graciously ask you to please refrain from taking communion. And I would even more graciously ask that you would give your life to Jesus Christ right here, right now. Why wait? He's the answer to your problem. He has been what you are seeking. So in these next few moments, would you just confess to the Lord any unconfessed sin as you prepare to take the bread with communion? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. So friends, would you now take the bread, the wafer on the top of your cup and eat it in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you? As we have spent some time confessing our sins, to choose to believe is a commitment. It's a commitment that says, Jesus, you are Lord. I will trust you. I will submit to you. I will surrender to you. I will obey you. In 1 Corinthians 11, when it's talking about communion, it says that part of when we drink the, the, the juice, which represents the blood, which is represented by the new covenant, which we talked about today, it says that in drinking this, we will proclaim Jesus. There's a commitment to live for him to proclaim the gospel. 
What commitment do you need to make to Jesus today? What's the next step of faith for you? So before we take the juice, would you spend some time committing to the Lord whatever he's asking you to commit to him? And it's probably that thing the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart right now. Take the governor off and let him have all of you and make that commitment between you and God right here. And then I'll, we'll take the juice together. Mm-hmm. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Friends, would you drink the cup representing the spilled blood of Jesus as a payment for our sins? Jesus, thank you for the blood. Thank you for ushering in with a display of your grace that is unmatched. The incredible love and glory of God that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn, but we, we choose to receive through belief. And God, right now, I just pray that in these areas of our hearts that we need to confess, in these areas of our hearts that we need to commit, that we would trust you and surrender fully to you in response to the grace you have offered to us. May we choose to revere you, worship you by surrendering to you and living for you by anchoring and centering our lives in the gospel that you have given to us and embracing the the abundant and the eternal life that only you offer us. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.